Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sit down with legendary former Stanford men's water polo coach, Dante Dedamonte. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining me. I'm back with another episode of Off the Deck. I am uh, have the privilege of having a legendary coach uh, from Stanford, Dante Dedamonte, on the line. Uh, coach, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Steve. I've been listening to some of your uh, broad, uh, podcasts, and uh, I've enjoyed them thoroughly, so I hope I can contribute something to them. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you can. I mean, this is um, it's always a pleasure, and it's always really just exciting for me to be able to talk to somebody that, you know, I've looked up to, I've, I've seen your career. I, I, when I started playing water polo was, you know, some of your uh, me- more memorable years in terms of Stanford. That's when I really started tuning into the world of water polo. But for the, right. for the audience that maybe doesn't know uh, all of your highlights, I just wanted to briefly touch on some of them. Um, you were inducted into the USA water polo hall of fame in 2002. Um, you were the assistant coach at UCLA in 69 and 70. Uh, and then you went on to be the head coach at Occidental. Um, right. You went on then to be the head coach at UC Santa Barbara for both swimming and water polo. And then you went on to become the head water polo coach at Stanford in 1976. Uh, during your time at Stanford, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but okay. you went uh, – 500, 548 and 147. You won 548 of your games. Uh, it says here through the USA Water Polo site that you won seven national championships. Um, uh, eight. Eight, <laughs> eight national championships. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think they put that on there before the last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll have to touch on that. So you got eight national championships. Okay. Um, you were assistant coach for the national team. Uh, for about three or four years, and you were assistant coach again. Uh, so you had two stints with the national team, 88 to 91, right. and then 2000 to 2004. Um, right. So first off, like I said, thank you very much for being on the program. And yeah. with such an amazing resume, I, I guess I just want to start off with asking you, how did you get involved with the sport of water polo? Well, I, I'll tell you, I, when I look back and, and see how many years I've been involved, it's hard to imagine. You know, and then you start adding it up, and you go, "God, I've been around this sport a long time." <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I started playing high school water polo in 1957. You know, so that was 63 years ago. Wow. Uh, I, my my high school coach was a uh, he played water polo at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and one of his teammates was Pete Catino, who wow. eventually coached at Cal. And so when they got out of, uh, of Cal Poly, uh, Pete went down to Oxnard High School and Carl Bell came to Santa Maria, my uh, hometown, and started the first ever water polo team there. So I was on that uh, on that team. And I actually got a chance to play for Pete one summer. We combined our teams and played at Junior Nationals or something like that. So, And then uh, uh, decided to go on to uh, UC Davis, and I, played, I swam and played water polo there. But I was an engineering major. And uh, 
I had no idea that I would be going into coaching because, uh, but you know, uh, I actually got my degree in engineering, but uh, there's so many things involved in college uh, uh, athletics uh, that you spend so much time doing that. And plus a lot of other things that were going on at the university. It took me five years to graduate uh, in engineering, but in that fifth year, I wasn't eligible to play anymore. So uh, the coach uh, UC Davis asked me if I wanted to help him coach. And uh, I became a student assistant and that started the whole thing. Uh, I, about a year later, I decided, you know, I don't really, really, I don't think I want to be an engineer. I'd, I'd really love to coach. And, but I had to go in the army for a couple of years. Uh, it was during Vietnam and uh, we, we actually had mandatory ROTC at all the schools in California, all the colleges. And, uh, but I became a, an officer and went in the army Corps of engineers. And I was really lucky. I was sent to uh, Korea uh, instead of, uh, instead of Vietnam. Mm. So, but when I got out, I decided uh, I had to, you know, I decided I wanted to coach, so I figured the best way to do that is to uh, go back to school and get a degree in um, uh, in, in sports. And uh, so I decided on exercise physiology. So I applied, and I also wanted to be involved in water polo and swimming. And uh, the best, the top coach at the time was Bob Horn at UCLA. So I said, well, I really would like to work for him. And uh, so I applied to UCLA and they said, no, sorry, you don't have enough courses to, uh, you don't have any anatomy, physiology, any chemistry. All I had was engineering courses. So I had to go back to Davis for a year and get all those courses out of the way. And then I reapplied to UCLA and and went there to get my master's and got a chance to work for, uh, you know, for Coach Horn as a, a graduate assistant for two years. Uh, and went on to Occidental College for four years, and then UC Santa Barbara three years, and then Stanford for 25 years. So, uh, and I, I, I'm still involved in the sport even now. I, I can't seem to get away from it. So, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's so. the it's the curse and the blessing. I mean, we, we yeah. It's so funny because when I talk to coaches, no matter what the age, no matter what their level of experience, it all seems like we got into coaching almost accidentally you know like I started doing this thing and then it just grew into this passion and you know I mean you know you you had the opportunity to to be mentored by someone like uh, Coach Horn um, and I unfortunately missed out on an opportunity uh, to be able to speak with him um, something I'll always regret that and and, uh, Bill Barnett actually Um, but you know you went on from UCLA and this may be a little specific, but is there something or a, a set of things that you remember specifically from Coach Horn that carried you through the next phases of your coaching career? Um, just his knowledge of the sport and the way he approached it. Uh, he he demanded perfection. Uh, and for me, it was not only working with him, but the athletes that he had at UCLA – he had two or three Olympians. Uh, he and uh, Monty Niskowski, who later became our Olympic coach, they ran uh, Club Phillips 66 and uh, got to work with him, too, at, at the club level. And uh, not only just his – I really can't say one thing about his philosophy other than that he 
he really knew the sport and he really uh, demanded his players, uh, you know, uh, play the sport the right way. Yeah. And, uh, but then he, the thing he gave me an opportunity to coach. I mean, here I was just a, a guy I came from UC Davis and, you know, we were that much back in those days. And, uh, he, you know, he didn't have to, to help me out that much. I was just a graduate student there, you know, God, he gave me all kinds of responsibilities. He, he, uh, he taught me how to referee so I could referee the practices. He gave, uh, he found a job for me at Santa Monica swim club. So for two years, you know, I didn't, I wasn't supported by my parents anymore. So I had to make a, a salary yeah, uh, just so I could get through school, but he gave me that opportunity. And, uh, and we, one thing that really, really was uh, helped out a lot was the fact that uh, UCLA won the first ever NC2A championships when I was there in 69. So my first, uh, I'm looking for a, I'm looking for a job after I get my master's and uh, the job opened up at Occidental college. And so I had all of this on my resume, you know, assistant to coach Horn. We won the first NC2A championships. I had a master's degree in exercise physiology and, uh, I, I was coaching two sports, you know, all these things, uh, really look good to Occidental, you know? Yeah, so no, that, absolutely. That, 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 that really helped me to get the job. And, uh, and uh, Oxy was, you know, a small division three school, uh, but we didn't even have divisions back in those days. This was before the NC2A really got started uh, in, in, you know, different divisions. Uh, but they, I was able to teach. I was actually on the faculty as a teacher I taught all kinds of classes, life-saving. I taught exercise physiology, kinesiology, coached two sports. And uh, this was, what, 1970, I guess. And my sal- my complete salary, full-time salary, was $8,500 a year. Oh, jeez. <laughs> at, at, at Oxy. And I was doing fine. You know, uh, I had a car. I took, I'd take off in the summer and go over to Hawaii and do some coaching over there. I was really enjoying myself. So it's but, funny uh, how it's interesting how even today, you know, you you look at you know your salary or what or not your salary, but your responsibilities that you had in 1970. Yeah. Co- you know, teaching, coaching, doing all these different things, basically piecemealing yeah. your livelihood. Some things haven't changed. I mean, coaches oh, today yeah. are piecemealing their livelihood still yeah. uh, to follow their passion, um, and so you know. It, it's kind of interesting that it's still going on that way, but um, I want to sort of jump ahead if I could, because uh-huh. you 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 mentioned that you know coaching for uh, or working with Coach Horn really sort of projected your career and winning that right. first national championship. The one thing that I see in your resume is that your water polo career is really merged with swimming as well. It's like they're basically you're doing both at the same time. Um, and that sort of took, takes me to the next question, which is, uh, what's your overall feeling about the state of water polo right now? You know, you, you've got to see it from so many different perspectives. Um, what do you think now about the sport of water polo? What are we doing? Right. What, what could we do better? Well, uh, I don't think you're asking the question in regards to swimming, but I, I, uh, I just want to do say, say one thing about that, and that back in those days, not only were coaches teachers at the schools, you were, you also coached swimming and water polo. So I, I have an extensive background in swimming, 
And uh, as far as this, I believe that we probably uh, rely too much on swimming in our sport. I think we do too much swimming. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, it's a team sport. You know, you're, you're learning how to play a game and we spend so much time on swimming laps up and down the pool. We don't spend enough time coaching the game. So uh, I, even, uh, even though I have a, a degree in exercise physiology and I coach swimming, I, I probably use swimming laps less than any coach in the country, or I did when I was coaching. Uh, and in fact, right now I'm doing a research paper, um, researching the science of, uh, of training and the energy systems that you use when you're playing in a game. And then I'm devising a conditioning system, which is effective. It's, it doesn't take a lot of time because the more time you spend on conditioning, uh, swim by swimming laps, the less time you're spending, you know, teaching the game. Yeah. So, so that part of the game, uh, and I, I think that came from years ago where we coach both sports. And uh, swimming coaches are famous for doing too much swimming. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, I think they over they 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 overtrain their athletes. But I think that's been carried on in, in, in generation after generation because you know when I played, my coach used to make us swim, so I'm going to make us swim. You know, and then the next guy comes along and says, "Well, my coach made us swim, so we're going to do a lot of swimming." Yeah. But nobody's really gone into it and then and figured out that there's got to be a better way to condition. You know, so so that's what the, uh, I'm actually writing a research paper. I might even pre- try to present it to uh, U.S. Water Polo when they have their annual meeting. Yeah, just to uh, come up with a, a system of training. But as far as far as the sport itself goes, I think I think we're in pretty good shape at the age group level uh, and high school levels. Uh, the addition of women's water polo has really helped. Uh, and it seems there are more and more areas around the country that are starting to add water polo. Uh, at the collegiate level, uh, we're really hurting. Uh, you know, when I was playing in the in the 60s, uh, in the early 60s, every state college in in California had a water polo varsity water polo program. Mm-hmm. That includes. Humboldt State, uh, Sacramento State, San Francisco State, Fullerton, Long Beach, San Diego, you name it, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, Pomona, they all had a varsity water polo. Every UC campus, UC Riverside, Santa Barbara, Davis, they all had varsity water polo. And there's only one state college left now, and that's Long Beach State. Uh, And then San Jose was just recently added. But uh, so... And now, instead of having those kind of opportunities, it's kind of focused uh, more on Division Three level now. Uh, in fact, if it wasn't for Division Three water polo teams being added, we probably would not even have the sport at the college level right now. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's really helped. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, a lot of it, uh, unfortunately, had to do with Title IX uh, and, and finances that athletic directors just didn't have the money uh, to support uh, a lot of women's sports and men's sports. So, and especially when you had to match women's sports with football, because there you've got 85 scholarships in football at division one. You have to match that on the women's side. So they did that. 
but then they had to cut men's teams on, on the other side. So I think that was uh, uh, probably a lot of that. Uh, now as a result, our women's programs are looking really good. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, our, as, you know, our women's team is doing so well at, at, at internationally. Um, and the, the men are doing okay, but uh, uh, it's, it's so difficult when you rely on people who have just graduated from a university, they've got a degree and they want to go out and raise a family and, and, uh, and start a business and, and make some money. And then you say, why don't you just take four years off your life and uh, train for the Olympics? We're not going to pay you very much money, you know? Yeah. So, and, uh, and you and, might not make the team. Yeah. You might not make the team. Yeah. And then, and you say, well, we have a chance to medal. Oh, well, we haven't had a chance to medal for quite a few years. Now, if you're on the women's side, you say, hey, we got a chance for a gold medal. Yeah. <laughs> or at least a medal, you know. Yeah. So we're going to stick it out for that time, you know. But uh, So it, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. That, so do you the think the – internationally is – yeah, go ahead. Do you think the main contributor to that international – the success of the international game really has to do with – the fact that we're just not having enough players play for a long enough period of time. I mean, that a, a lot of other people have, you know, John Abdu mentioned that, you know, um, some other Jack Coker's mentioned that as well, you know, just sort of like the fact that, you know, our our starting center right now is like going to be a senior at Stanford. You know what I mean? He's like 21 yeah, yeah. years old. That That's kind of a tough, yeah. uh, tough bargain, you know? So are you asking uh, what's happening internationally, how it affects U.S. water polo? Or? Yeah, I mean, like, are you saying that yeah. is it harder for us to compete, basically, because everyone that we have is a little bit younger than the other teams? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, I think our system makes it difficult. Uh, I mean, it doesn't hurt, seem to hurt the women, but I think it hurts the men. And uh, that we really, it, you know, Europe and around the world is based on club water polo. And you can keep playing uh, up into your 30s. Yeah. And, you know, in, in this country, you're done at 22 years old. You know, I mean, uh, so uh, that definitely makes you, I mean, the experience. Uh, plus, I, I think that this, the international system really is not good for our the kind of players we have in this country. I, I really think a lot of our big, big athletes go into football and basketball and other sports. And I think our best athletes are right around uh, five foot ten to like six foot two or three. They're good swimmers, uh, and we don't. The international system just doesn't uh, isn't conducive to having those kind of athletes on a team. You know, I, I really think that we need to play the system very uh, similar to what the Japanese are playing. You know, they've got a bunch of small guys too. Yeah, but I mean, water polo water polo is a big man's game right now. And it's being tall and being able to shoot the ball. Well, we're not great shooters because, you know, uh, we got these guys that are 20, 20, 21, 22 years old. They haven't learned how to shoot yet. And so uh, the game, uh, I think we really need to play a different style of game. And as long as we keep bringing in uh, coaches from Serbia and places like that, we're never going to play a U.S. style. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and I, I just think we need the game needs more movement. Uh, I think we need more driving. I mean, you'd watch the international games. There is there's no driving at all. I mean, it's a complete zone uh, game. It relies 
strictly on outside shooting. And I actually, to tell you the truth, I do not enjoy watching the international game unless it's the close game, you know, and find, uh, you know, the score is 10 to 10 with a minute left to go. And, you know, those are exciting, fun to watch. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, we, we, the whole game is you pretty much, you swim down the pool, everybody stops in front of the goal. You don't even have a counterattack anymore. Uh, the zone, they go from a zone defense. Everybody's playing zone. So they go from a zone. They can't counter from the zone because it's just, you can't get free when you're playing a zone. Yeah. So they go down in front of the goal. Everybody stops in front of the goal. The biggest guy on the team goes in there and turns his back to the goal and stops in front of the goal. And they pass the ball around for, you know, 10, 20 seconds. And finally they try to throw it into the, uh, the big person in the front of the goal and draw an exclusion. And, that's what the international game is. It's trying to just, or, or if you don't get it into the center, then you shoot the ball from outside. I mean, that's the international water polo. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to me, it's just, well, we have, we have enough problems with being in the water and, you know, people not being able to see um, the, the action that much. But when we stop and just sit there and do nothing, it makes it, makes it even worse. So uh, I just think we, we, you know, I tell you, as long as we have this rule where if you throw the ball into the center, uh, there's going to be an, almost an automatic exclusion. That uh, coaches will—that's all they'll do, especially the international coaches. I, I think we do, we do, we do more driving in our country in, at the high school and college levels than they do internationally. You know, completely. Yeah. So, yeah. And the new uh, rules that are being implemented seem to be allowing for more driving, which hopefully will allow for the athletes yeah. of the U S to, you know, yeah. show their athleticism. Yeah, I, was, a little I, was bit in, more. I was involved in, in, in uh, with FINA and, and working on those rules. I had a lot of ideas, which they thought were too radical. So <laughs> I, uh, well, I, what I wanted, uh, I wanted uh, like a zone that you have a, a lane violation in basketball, you cannot stop inside the area in front of the goal, like between the goal post and inside five meters for more than a three or four or five seconds. Uh, and, and you can only receive the ball dry to shoot it in there. Well, they didn't like that. Yeah. So, but they, so they initiated, which the rule they initiated, which said that if you were inside six meters and you were swimming towards the goal and there was a, defender behind you and if he touched you whether you were holding the ball or not there was an automatic five meter penalty and so when that rule first came out i said this is ridiculous first of all it goes against everything as far as water polo goes because if he's holding the ball you should be able to foul him right <laughs> so but so they so everybody said well this is going to encourage teams to drive because they're going to be able to pick up five meters. They can just get inside water on their defender. They're going to get a lot of penalty shots. So the, when the rule first came out, you saw the European teams, they were getting two to three kickouts or uh, penalty shots per game. And then that lasted for a couple of months. And then they now they're right back to where they were before. You don't see them driving anymore at all. Yeah, so, we, we actually, yeah. when we started implementing those rules on January 1st through the club level, I mean, uh -huh. geez, 
games were lasting an hour and 15 minutes. You know, we're talking 12 year old, 14 year old games, 14 under games. They're lasting an hour, hour and 15 minutes because there were so many penalties that yeah, it, yeah. it was just, it, it was almost absurd, you know, like it, it really yeah. did change um, the game. It, but I do see, I did see a little bit more creative playmaking because it was all about just yeah. getting inside water. It was all about just getting that inside position. Sure, um, sure. But, <clears throat> and correct I, me if I I'm... I see that in this country. I really, I, re- I really do at the high school level. I've seen that. And I've seen it at the college level, too. But and internationally, at first, they've got some, uh, uh, some great players internationally that would be fantastic drivers. Yeah. Um, the guy that's playing for Spain right now, like, uh, he was in uh, Brazil last year. Uh, one of the Hungarians, they're just fantastic drivers, but the coaches are going right back to what they did before. Uh, they don't want to, uh, well, well, first of all, when you drove inside, uh, they, they, they were just putting your hands, their hands straight over their head so they wouldn't get called for the five meters. Yeah, yeah. They weren't getting as many five meters because people were adjusting to that rule. But uh, I would, we we need some other rules. We really do. Uh, I think the you, other, you know, are you, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing that I think is would be helpful, and it's something that I, I've spoken to other people about is we need to just implement the same rules across all levels. I mean, the fact that we have different rules for high school and different rules for club yeah, and yeah. different rules for international, it makes things so confusing. I think it's just let's oh, just gosh. teach the kids how to play one way instead of teaching yeah. them how to play three ways because yeah if everybody was on the same page in terms of like trying to make team USA the best it could be that would be one yeah. thing but because of this point that we made earlier about livelihoods you know i mean money yeah. winning the, is it, it, they're all kind of lined up together if you win you get more kids if you get more kids you sure. get more money and so on and so yeah. forth and it just becomes sort of like a dangerous cycle in some ways. Yeah. Well, you know, the international coaches are the same. They they need to win. If they don't win, if they don't uh, do well, they're, they'll get fired as the head coach of their country. And so they have to do whatever the rules allow them to do, they'll do to try to win. And they have all, they're all convinced themselves that we have to get as many kickouts as we can. That's the international way of playing. And uh, and we need to get as many, you know, penalties and and uh, and extra man situations as we can. And yet, their their shooting percentage on six on five is less than it is when they're in, in the half court. I mean, they're shooting thirty percent. You know, so you do, you go to all that work to to put a guy in front of the goal and try to get the ball into him, and then and then you only make thirty percent uh, of your shots uh, when you're you're uh, you have an extra man. I mean, it's just, it's just great. And to me, watching people pass the ball around six against five, to me, is not exciting water polo. No, no. I mean, these are all, these are all like, you know, and we're talking, you know, I'm talking to you, you're like a lifelong water polo fan, advocate, myself, I've been coaching for 20 years. And I mean, I think what you and I would both agree, water polo on TV is not the most exciting thing. Uh, you yeah. could watch. I mean, I, I love watching games on, uh, you know, college games on like the Pac-12 network. I, I you know, I love it when it's streamed. I think people like Greg Meskel, 
Chris Doris to Adam Krikorian, you know, when they're doing the broadcast, I think they do a phenomenal job of like bringing the excitement out. Oh, I think they do too. But when you're watching international, it's like, uh, you know, like it's pretty boring and sometimes there's not even any announcers. I mean, or it's in a different language. You don't understand anyway. I I tell you, there's one team in the world I would pay to watch and that's Japan. I love the way they play Yeah, and they get free. They have, they're scoring six, seven goals a game on the counterattack. They're driving all over the place. You know, we used to drive in this country. We really, my first five years at Stanford, we would work on driving every single day in practice. Every day we would drive and drive because that back then you could throw the ball to the center and there would, there wouldn't be a kick out. It would be a normal foul. Yeah. And the center picks up the ball. He became a passer Yep. and guys would drive. And the center would feed them. It's kind of like basketball, the high post in basketball. Well, so we did a lot of driving back in these days. You know, I, I'm working with kids now, high school kids and club kids. And I said, okay, uh, today we're going to work on, on driving. We're going to try to, we're going to introduce driving. They don't, they have no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, driving, what's, what's driving? I mean, really. Uh, And how how many athletes do you think we've forced out of the sport because we don't have a system uh, that requires driving or that encourages driving? I mean, we probably have eliminated so many potentially good athletes because it just they weren't big enough or they weren't, you know, whatever it was. Um, And and, and before. Go ahead. uh, How many guys from from uh, our college system who are 5'10", 5'11", or you know, six foot, six one, six two, they're good drivers that have that have not made our national team. And the main reason is they're not big enough. You know, and because we don't have a system that will help those guys. Yeah. Uh, if we had a driving system, those guys would be on the team. I mean you look at some there was a couple of guys, was it uh from UCLA that graduated a few years ago that never made the team. I mean uh uh Vavic, the left-handed Vavic from from USC, that would have been a great driver. There's there's guys on there now that are super drivers. Uh, yeah, Johnny Coop, Hooper. Cupido. Johnny Hooper is one. Cooper, uh, uh, Cupido, Hunnis uh, Dalbay. Um, yeah. I mean, no, I those, I agree. Those. There are some. I mean, Johnny Hooper is. But I think with someone like a Johnny Hooper, who I had, you know, I had to coach against him when he was in high school. He was he's been a handful since the beginning. But oh, sure. There. There was a time, I would say, in like 90s all the way through the 2000s uh-huh. that there were a lot of hoopers. There were a lot of potential oh, sure. Johnny Hoopers oh, yeah. out there um, that just didn't – that got passed over. Uh, I mean, Hooper is a phenomenal talent, so I'm not taking anything away from him at all. He is well, clearly super athletic, well, but there well, have been well, a lot I'll, of guys I'll, like I'll that. Tell you a little, I'll tell you a little story about the Hooper. I was uh, – the first year that uh, Dion came from uh, Serbia and was coaching the team, uh, he asked me if I would help out Alex uh, Rodriguez uh, with the junior team and youth teams, uh, just be a mentor kind of thing. So I went to a couple of workouts, and I didn't know who Johnny Hooper was. I mean, I've been out of the sport uh, for a while, and I'm watching the practice. It was down in San Diego, and I see this kid. It's just, man, he's everywhere in the pool. He's just driving, playing defense, countering, just all over the place. And so I asked Alex, I said, what, uh, you know, who's that there? And he said, that's, that's Johnny Hooper. I said, boy, that kid, is, he's, he's the best player at that level I've seen. He was probably 
16, I think, at the time. And they, they were tryouts for the national youth team. And so I said, well, gosh, he's going to make the team, isn't he? And he said, no, he's not going to be on the team. I said, well, why not? He says, because our, our national coach thinks he's too small. And so, so he never made that team. Hmm. Uh, they, went to, they went to Turkey to play in the World Youth Championships, and he wasn't on the team. I mean, now he's on there. Yeah. And I think they finally figured out that yeah, he's, he's, he's too good to leave him off. No, definitely. But you're right. How, how many guys have not made our national team and have stopped playing water polo? Uh, and that's why I say our, I think our best athletes, if you, if, you, uh, if you have a driving game, are these guys that are 5'10", you know, 5'9", uh, smaller guys, also tell you this, my well, I already told you that my first few years at Stanford, that's all we did was work on driving. But half of my team, half of my team was under six feet tall. Yeah. When I was at my first few years at Stanford, I mean we had some we had guys on our Olympic team that were five nine, Kevin Robertson from Cal, Doug Burke uh, from Stanford, uh, uh, Gary Figueroa from UC Irvine. These guys were on our U.S. national team. And they, there was not one guy out of those three that I just mentioned. That I don't think there was taller than five foot ten, and they were excellent drivers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, and that that kind of leads me. This is a perfect segue into Stanford, which, <clears throat> obviously, you know, you made your career, your name at Stanford. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's yeah. really where you staked your claim. Well, yeah, 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 really, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, listen, every single kid. Every single water polo player, every single parent wants their kid to go to Stanford. You know, I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, it's the dream. Um, And uh, I I just have to ask you, you know, what was the experience of getting hired at Stanford like? And then how did you really make your way? What was your mindset going into Stanford uh, to really make it your program? Right. Well, uh, I, at the time I was coaching at UC Santa Barbara and, um, we had just, uh, been in the national championships. We were placed top four. We had just lost to Stanford. They were the national champions. This was in 76, uh, with Art Lambert coaching. And, uh, we had just lost them by one goal. And, uh, I knew, I knew Art pretty well. I would talk to him on the phone quite often. So after the NC2As that that spring, I get a phone call from Art, and he said, "You know, I'm retiring. I'm getting I'm getting out of uh, water polo. I'm going into volleyball." And uh, he said he asked me if I would be interested in the job. And uh, I thought about it for a bit. I go, I just I love being in Santa Barbara. We had a really good program going. We were we were doing well. We were making top four in NC2As. And, uh, and the more I thought about it, you know, uh, it was really tough to pass up that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, there were some problems with the athletic department at Santa Barbara, the leadership there. There were no guarantees you we were going to have a job, you know, the next year. So uh, I made the step up there. And that was a tough act to follow, Art Lambert. Art Lambert was a two-time Olympic coach. And uh, they had just won the national championships. And... Uh, here comes this young punk from Santa Barbara who's going to take over the program, you know. And so, but I I learned one thing when I was, especially when I was coaching at Occidental, you gotta you gotta recruit. 
and and uh, you really have to learn how to recruit. So uh, and I kind of changed my game a little bit. Although I've always I've always wanted to counterattack, and we had the guys that could do that, could run that kind of a system. Uh, so I I was looking for guys that could swim uh, and could also play polo. Uh, guys, I, I actually learned this from Art Lambert. He said he he didn't want guys on his team. It could not break 50 seconds for the 100 freestyle. So, um, so I, I I started recruiting. Um, that first year I was there, uh, I really didn't have a chance to do much recruiting. We had graduated three or four really great players from uh, the year before: Chris Dorst in the goal, uh, Drew McDonald was the center uh, defender, played on the Olympic team. Uh, we got a few guys back, but. Uh, uh, so I went out and, and I really started recruiting. And that, uh, I I always the thing about Stanford, like you said, kids the parents do want their kids to go there, and kids do want to go there. But you got to get them into school. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that's always been the difficult part. We always thought that if we could get a guy accepted, we'd have a pretty good chance of getting him in of, of them coming to the school because yeah. they really wanted to go there. But that but we had to overcome that hurdle of, of uh, recruiting hurdle. And uh, it's it's tough. Well, I tell you, <laughs> uh, Bill Walsh, who was, you know, a football coach and former uh, 49er and Stanford coach, always said that in football, they had the smallest recruiting pool of any university in the nation as far as football goes, because they just couldn't get guys in. And he could get guys in. I couldn't because yeah. football had a little bit of, you know, so, they had some pull. But, <laughs> you didn't have yeah, any pull. Had a lot more pull than we, exactly. So, but that first year, uh, I got in three freshmen: uh, Jody Campbell, who became an Olympian, uh, Alan Muchoir, who became an uh, Olympian, and Chris Kelsey, who was from I think Miracosta, Costa Mesa, I think down south. We got those three guys in. Jody was a was our center. Uh, he was. Um, uh, he was six feet, maybe six one, but probably six feet tall and weighed about 155 pounds. He was he was skinny, and uh, but he was a great a great great center. And so uh, with those three guys uh, and uh, the guys returning from the Art Lambert team of '76, we had three uh, you know really really good players. One of them was Doug Burke, who eventually made our Olympic team. But they were, but all those guys, they were all, they were all five ten, five nine, five ten, five eleven, uh, no really big guys, and I really concentrated on the counterattack. Uh, we trained the guys to counter, and you know, you, you remember we're playing in a thirty meter pool. Yeah, yeah. So the counterattack is much more effective in a thirty meter pool. I really think that was a big mistake when they went to 25 meters at the collegiate level, I think that has hurt our counter that end zone defenses. So I really pushed the counter. I really pushed the driving game. And we, and in my second year, we, we won the championship. Wow. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I, I kept that philosophy going all my years at Stanford. I'd recruit the fastest guys I could find that could play water polo and even if they couldn't, we still we would teach them how to play water polo. I had Pablo Morales; he was a world record holder in the in a hundred meter butterfly. I remember he was Pablo on the Morales. swim team. I remember. Yeah, him. he was on the he, he was on the swim team. 
but the swimming coach didn't want those guys to play water polo. He thought they'd get hurt. And finally, uh, Pablo's junior year, the coach let him come out for the team. And he came out, and he really helped us. He was not a starter, but I could bring him off the bench. And, man, he would just counter up and down the pool four or five, six times and wear the other team out, you know. So uh, so I've always wanted, always liked uh, you know, good swimmers, and I've always tried to use good swimmers. And uh, I, I think that philosophy just stayed with me the whole time I was there. Yeah, so uh, when you, you won the very first national championship as an assistant or a grad assistant with UCLA, and then yeah. you win in your second year, you know, and you obviously had had some success from UCLA to UC Santa Barbara. Um, and, and then you, you're able to win it at Stanford. Was there something about winning early on with Bob Horn that you used or that, that, that you sort of held on to after you, you know, even when you won at Stanford, is there something that you've held on um, about winning, about what it takes to win a championship that you repeat, that you repeated throughout your career? If, if there's any one uh, philosophy or thought, um, some of us coaches yeah, are pretty but, superstitious. <laughs> right. Well, there's, there's a couple of things, but the, the first thing is you have to prepare the guys. And, and of course, you have to, you have to qualify at a, at a high seed, which is really important. So your games during the season, you really have to put emphasis on those. You know, you, you can't slack off during the season. Like, you know, in swimming, they'll swim all season and they won't taper till the end of the year. Yeah. Well, there were games during the season where we, we had to taper. If we wanted to beat UCLA or Cal or USC, you know, we had to rest up for those games. And, and so those games become very important. So the seeding that you get is really critical. I mean, uh, if you could be going as number one seed, it was a, big big advantage yeah because usually there were really there were usually three really great teams and the fourth team wasn't as, as good so if you're seated number one you would have a little easier game in the semifinals but you really what, what i learned this from bob horn too you really have to emphasize the quarterfinals and semifinals we had uh, eight teams back then in the national championship so you played three games one game each day quarterfinals and you you had to really get the guys ready to play the quarterfinals and the semifinals and once you got into the finals that took care of itself the guys no problem but players have a tendency to overlook the preliminary games especially if you go in there as the number one or number two or number three seed you're thinking oh you know uh, the players are thinking this way you know we're the top seed we're playing a team who's not seated very high we're playing a team from the east coast that we we should be able to beat so and so you really have to guard against that yeah and or so, you've already uh, beaten them multiple times throughout the year you know and then yeah, you, so exactly. you already yeah. feel really complacent yeah. about the game yeah and so once uh, and once you get into the final game that pretty much takes care of itself you know the guys they're psyched for that final game. Yeah. You don't have to talk them into anything, you know. But uh, I was going to say something about uh, these semifinals. Oh, this uh, I think USC learned this the hard way when uh, when Yovan was there uh, years ago. I think it was in the late nineties. Yeah, I remember what you're talking. They, about. This is Adam Wright's senior year, uh, the yeah, current coach of UCLA. Or, so, and yeah, UC San Diego this, beats them in the semi beats exactly, USC in the semifinal. Yeah. yeah, semifinal. There was only four teams in that tournament, 
and UC San Diego beat USC in the semifinal. And that's the only time that a non uh, Pac-12 school has been in the final. Uh, You know, UC San Diego was the only one. So I think I think uh, Yovan learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. So and I well I tell you we had some tough games. We had some tough games. Uh, We uh, I remember we played UMass one year in the it was the quarters. Jeez, we barely won that game. You know, I mean, so uh, and you know, as a coach, you can warn the guys about this, and you know, they'll believe most of it, but they'll still in the back of their minds they're thinking. Oh man, we're going to win this game. It's not a problem, you know. What's he talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, not just that, but I mean, I mean, I was playing at Queens College in the '90s, in the late '90s. Uh, UMass was a really good team. I mean, they, they. I know a lot of people think, oh, it's East Coast, not a big deal. But you have some really talented people playing on these teams. You just don't have the depth. Sure. You know, the depth isn't there. We didn't have Pablo Morales yeah. coming off the bench, <laughs> you know, type thing. Yeah, yeah. So just a totally so, different situation, but. Yeah, you know well, they, they're also the hungry. We can always rely on, but yeah, oh sure, the heck yes, this is their chance. Yeah, you know, to yep. go to the to win a national championship. Well, the the one thing that I noticed more than anything about the East Coast teams is they didn't have the speed that we had, and that really came down at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah, we really could keep up for like a really quarter happened. or two, but at the end of yeah. the day, the yeah. depth of these MPSF schools was just. I mean, yeah. it's just unmatched. Yeah. You can't, you couldn't keep up. Yeah. But um, so, you know, you're, you're, you win your first national championship at Stanford. Now the expectation is obviously, especially you do it in year two. So now the expectation has yeah. been elevated. Um, and forgive me for not knowing this. I probably should have researched it. Yeah. But was there a, was there a stretch run of multiple championships in a row? Yeah, uh, and you know that kind of perpetuated itself. In the first, uh, my first year, we were third, uh, and so I, you know, and we had just won the year before under Coach Lambert, and so I kind of had, you know, I had to get the monkey off my back because that people are saying, "Wait a minute, you came here and you got third. You inherited a team that got first the year before. You know what's wrong with you?" Yeah, and so I, I and so, and then we won in that. Uh, the second year and that that really put the program back in in the right direction again and i think that um guys who uh, who i was recruiting guys who were already there you know they started trusting me uh, a lot more that hey we can win with this coach you know and so uh i think that just changed the whole outlook on things so we came back and we had some pretty talented players <laughs> Those yeah I mean, John Ganslow in the goal, I think, was probably one of the best goals we've ever had in this country. You know, guys like Jody Campbell and, and Alan Muchwar. And then Jamie Bergeson from Newport came in. Uh, and the, those guys were all sophomores. Uh, he was one of the top high school players. And so we had some great talent. So we came back that next year and won again uh, two years in a row. And then in 79, uh, we had graduated a lot of our depth and I pretty much had six starters and a goalie. And that was about it. Our guys coming off the bench were not experienced. Uh, and even though I tried to play them as much as I could during the season, we didn't have a lot of depth. And that was the year we ended up for some reason, the seating was all messed up that year. Uh, 
I don't know what, what caused that, but we were not seated one or two. I think we were third or fourth. We had to play UC Santa Barbara, my old team, <laughs> in the semifinals. And they had Wilson in the goal, a for, you know, future Olympian. Uh, they had uh, John DeBrat, Greg Boyer, another Olympian. Uh, they had redshirted a bunch of guys. They were really primed. Uh, but we had beaten them just like two or three weeks before NC2As. We had beaten them with like four goals. Yeah. And I still thought we could do it. So we get to the NC2As, and uh, it was a, one of these games that was a high, lot of, uh, high number of fouls. And <laughs> Jody, Jody Campbell, my center, fouls out at the beginning of, a, uh, of the third quarter. And so there's my center. Uh, then Alan Buchwar, uh, probably our best driver, uh, fouled out at the end of the third quarter. And we were actually leading at halftime. And uh, we could just, we could not maintain that for the whole game. We just weren't able to keep it up. And Santa Barbara beat us. And then they came back in the finals and beat UCLA like eight or nine goals wow. to win the championship. Wow. So I, I thought that that game we played Santa Barbara was probably the championship game. But then we came back the year after, uh, and we built up our depth, and we won again. So we had won, you know, three out of four years. Yeah, I see uh, uh, a couple of back-to-backs now that I'm looking it up. 80-81, uh, 85-86, yeah. 93-94. Yeah, well, uh, in, in 80, uh, 82, uh, all those guys had graduated. The only guy I had left uh, was Bergeson. And John Tanner, who's now the women's coach at Stanford, yeah. he was on my team, left-hander, and we we played second that year to UC Irvine. And what's really interesting about that is that uh, Coach John Vargas was playing for Irvine oh, at wow. that time. Yeah, <laughs> wow, and so funny. and even even now, you know, they're both at Stanford. One's the men's coach and one's the women's coach. Uh, John Tanner and John Vargas always. Uh, you know, getting on each other, teasing each other about uh, that game and why, who, you know, who was the better player oh, and who, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. funny. But, but then, uh, then once we graduated, well, we had a year. That, that was the one thing about Stanford, is we, uh, because of the admissions, we never had a lot of depth. Uh, we just couldn't get enough players in, and uh, so when those guys all graduated in '83, I recruit. I had about eight freshmen come in and I was starting five or six freshmen that year. And we did not even qualify for NC2As that year. And, uh, and that, that team had uh, Craig class who became an Olympian, Eric Fisher, whose daughters are now on the Olympic team. Yep. He became an Olympian, but those guys were all very, very young that first year, but their sophomore year, we won, um, we, we played second and then their junior and senior years, we won again. So we had, Two more back to back. So, yeah. so that first that first ten years was was pretty interesting. I mean, uh, we we won like four five championships. We got second a couple times, and we got third. And one year we didn't even go. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, in in where I kind of come in in terms of like my playing career was in the '90s. I mean, I watched my brother. Right. I watched my older brother play uh, high school in in the late '80s, early '90s, and then I started high school and. I remember watching video and then going to watch, um, you know, the national championship tournament at Belmont Plaza in Long Beach. Yeah. And uh, right. I remember that those teams in the nineties, I mean, the Jeremy Lasters and 
Jack Bowen Wolf and Weigo. Wolf Weigo Wolf. and yeah, right. You know, when when I look back on those, and those are names that are obviously more familiar with you know the the people who are playing probably right now because they're yeah, still exactly. very actively involved with coaching. Um, yeah. You know what could you what could you tell me about someone first of all about someone like a Wolf Weigo who came in from the East Coast, um, comes from yeah. New York. Um, what could you tell me about players, those players in the nineties and, and did you see an increase in athleticism yeah. and yeah. vision of the game? Yeah. Well, Weigel was an interesting, cause he, he was from New York and they didn't have great high school water polo back there, but he played for New York athletic club as a youngster. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, he was, uh, he was you know, 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. He was playing with older guys and he was a great swimmer and had a great desire to win. One of the most competitive players I've ever coached. And that was the thing that separates the really, I think the great players from just the mediocre players is that desire to win uh, and just willing to work at it and, and doing everything you needed to do to win. And, uh, and Wolf had that, Tony, Tony Azevedo had that. Uh, all, uh, Jody Campbell had that, uh, Craig class had that, you know, just, and these guys would just, uh, work their tails off. And that to me, uh, I was lucky to have a lot of guys like that. And that, and that team in the nineties was uh, really an excellent team. Uh, it was interesting because we had the two point shot back there. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and uh, we, you could win or lose on two point shots, but the, we actually played USC twice, and Jovan, this was his first couple of years when he was at USC in uh, 93 and 94, and we, we actually beat them then. But then they came back uh, at the end of um, the 90s and won their first championship, and that was against us too. So, so he got his revenge. But, yeah. uh, but um, yeah, uh, you know, but that's very typical of Stanford is you, you get uh, a group of good players, uh, you win a couple of championships back to back, and then uh, those guys graduate, and it's hard to replace them because of admission standards. So you go a couple of years where, you know, you're not up there at the top, and uh, and then kind of rebuild the team again, try to bring in as many guys as you can, and then then you win a couple more years. You know, so we we've actually had at, in Stanford's history won four uh, four times. We've been back to back champions. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and that's just, you know, so typical, you know, of Stanford. So did you yeah. recruit, you recruited Tony Azevedo and you coached him yeah. for one year or two? Well, he was there for two years. Uh, he had my, uh, his first year at Stanford, that was the summer, uh, that the summer before that was the Olympic games in Australia and they didn't finish until September. They had to hold them late because of the weather that's winter time down there. Uh. So they wanted to hold them. They held them in September and we had, you know, we were, we'd already been practicing for three or four weeks and we, school had already started when Tony showed up. I mean, he was a, a week or two behind in his classes. Oh, wow. And I, I saw that at UCLA when I was there, that these guys who come back from the Olympics and they step off the plane and they jump into the pool and start playing for the college system the, the it's just not there for them you know they've already they just finished playing in the olympic games you know and uh, and they're tired they've, they've been working their 
rear ends off for four years, and they just played in the Olympics. And the thing they don't really want to do at that time is to start playing on a college team immediately, you know. So I gave I redshirted Tony that first year, and he didn't play. He practiced with us, and he didn't play at all that first year. And then we came back in my second in the second year, and we won the championship with him. Uh, and uh, I probably should have stayed for his all four years, but <laughs> at that time I was I was getting ready to retire. Uh, you know, I had been there 25 years, and so uh, I announced my retirement. And, uh, and we won that championship. And then those players came back under Coach Vargas the next year, and they won again. Uh, that team had uh, uh, Peter Hudnut on it, who became an Olympian, uh, and Tony, and, and Jeff Nesmith, who's now coaching at uh, Long Beach Wilson, and players like that. So that, that was really an excellent team. So, uh, so that, that was our last back-to-back, was uh, one year with me and then the second year with Coach Vargas. Gotcha. And you were still sort of hanging around at the time. I mean, because you you live in the Bay Area, so you're 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 kind of were you still around, or or did you not really? Yeah, did well, you kind of stay uh, away? One one reason I was retiring is I wanted to travel and see the world because uh, you're pretty tied down, you know, when you're coaching. Yeah. And, and we in water polo, I don't know why, but we're the only sport that pretty much plays all summer too, which, you know, on the men's side, the women don't do it in the summertime as much as the men do. But so, so I, I did a lot of traveling. Uh, uh, my wife and I bought a, uh, a, a trailer, a fifth wheel trailer. Oh, gotcha. And we just traveled, we traveled around the country for almost a year after that. And uh, so I didn't get a chance to that first season uh, that coach Vargas was there. I didn't, I didn't see any games. I was completely, at the other end of the United States. Yeah. So, uh, but then I was able to come back after that and got a little more involved, uh, you know, uh, helping out uh, as much as I could. You know, uh, the, the one thing that Coach Vargas asked me the most questions about was the admissions process. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's a, you know, after 25 years, I kind of figured out, you know the ins and outs of yeah uh, you could probably business. look at a transcript and basically just say right off the bat give this a chance oh, yeah. or yeah. this one's yeah. not going to happen yeah. Yeah. and actually now it's getting pretty tough uh even even tougher uh stanford only accepts five percent of the applicants who apply to the university and uh the sports are they're, they're putting they're, what they want the coaches to do is look at each sport has a certain number of names that you can give the admissions office. And uh, that, that's it. You yeah. give them those names and they will give those guys a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. But man, you have to do your homework. Yeah, You better make sure those guys are qualified. You better make sure they're going to get in. Uh, and so, you know, I'm sure there are people who have applied to Stanford and, and Coach tells them, uh, you know, Coach Vargas tells them, well, sorry but we're not going to be able to get you in and uh you know so because you look at the transcripts and you can tell you know you you tell them you probably should not apply yeah you know it's just not gonna it's not gonna make it i mean you you know so yeah i mean i have a couple guys currently there at stanford and i could tell you their their grades were ridiculously amazing <laughs> coming yeah. out of high school yeah. Oh, yeah. and it wasn't just that it was the the uh, the workload that they took the ap classes yeah. the yeah. 
oh, volunteering, sure. the just all these different things that they did. Yeah. And they didn't do it to get into Stanford. They genuinely have that sort of servant's yeah, heart. Yeah. But and, and, and Stanford looks for people like that. Yeah. You know, who are doing other things. I mean, athletics is certainly part of it, you know, and playing water polo, too. But all those other things, too, taking AP classes, getting good grades in AP classes, volunteering, you know, uh, school activities, you know, stuff like that. They, they want they want, you know, well-rounded people. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. let me let me transition a little bit into some some advice for some coaches that are listening. I mean. Uh, we, yeah. ha- we have the, op- we have you here on the line and the opportunity to ask you, I mean, we could probably do a call-in show for an hour here with people calling and yeah. asking questions. He- right. Here's where I would like, to- what I'd like to ask you. Okay. I- and I'm going to relate it to my own life because I have a 13 year old son. He's not going to be the biggest guy in the world. He loves water polo. He's passionate about athletics. He's passionate about competition. Right. What? would you say are the two or three things that you would work on with your kids for them to be successful? I'm not talking about, you know, going to Stanford or I'm just talking about being a good high school player. And if he gets an opportunity to play in college, great. But we all know that, you know, going to Stanford or Harvard or any of these, you know, UCLA, USC, any of these universities, it's, it's really, really difficult. So, um, what, what would you, say to my 13 year old in terms of this is what you should work on right well if he's looking to get in to be a college player uh coaches coaches at the college level are looking for guys that will make a difference in their program uh they're looking for guys that are enthusiastic about the game guys that are aggressive uh most of them are looking for guys that can swim uh well uh and just that overall attitude. Uh, I, I had a guy who came in here as a freshman from Puerto Rico, Antonio Busquets. And this kid had more passion for the sport of waterfall than any kid I've ever met, you know, coming out of high school. Yeah. And really a, a smart young guy. And I started him as a freshman. And Eric Fisher is the same way. Eric Fisher came from Reedley High School. In, in the middle of uh, near Fresno, up in the uh, Sequoias, uh, nobody knew who he was. But gosh, he had that passion about the game. He was aggressive. He went for it. He's uh, and I started him as a freshman. And the guys on the team when I started Antonio from Puerto Rico were telling these the juniors and seniors are going, wait a minute. Why is this guy starting ahead uh, of, of the older guys? You know, we we know the game. I said, well, I think one word I can give you is his passion for the game and his uh, his aggressiveness, his ability to just really attack. And uh, every minute he's in the game, every minute he's in the water, he's just going for it. You know, and uh, and cause I I see a lot of high school guys now. They're very passive. They just sit back and let things happen to them. I, I, I always tell players, I say there are two kinds of players, the kind who let things happen to them or the kinds that make things happen. So I want guys that make things happen, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, even if you're aggressive and you, and I, I tell guys this all the time too, I would rather have you aggressive and make a mistake. And I, I will not get on you for that. You know, I, if, if you're aggressive, I'd rather have you that way 
than to just sit back and let things come to you and, and just not put the effort in or be, or be an aggressive player. So uh, I, I think, you know, you've, you've got to stand out. Yeah. You know, you're competing with all these other guys, and there's got to be something about you. The coach sees you play and says, hey, I want that guy. So, you know, and take a part of the game that you're good at and really improve that, but also improve all the other parts of the game. And learn how to play defense. <laughs> you know, learn how to play defense. There's so, so many guys that do not care about defense at all. And so I, I, I looked for all those qualities when I was recruiting guys out of high school. Yeah. So, uh I don't know if that answers your question. No, it definitely that, no, it definitely yeah, does. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard some similar, you know, some similar things. I mean, like, what is it that you do that makes you stand out? And I, and I, I, yeah. I spoke to Brian Krutzkamp in the, in my last uh, one of one of my earlier episodes, right. um, and you know that was something that he had said. You know, it's like, what is it that you do that's spectacular? You know, everybody can do yeah. pass, shoot, swim you know, play defense, but what is your spectacular thing? And, and is there something that you sort of, is there one thing, it it could be one or two things that you, that you really looked for that was like, wow, that guy's got a great vertical game or wow, that I'm looking for that shooter. Or was there something that you were specifically looking for or were you always looking uh, for the overall? I, I think not only standing out individually, but being a team player, making the guys around you better. I've seen guys that think that uh, all they have to do is go out there and do everything themselves. They're going to drive. They're going to shoot. Every time their hand, they touch the ball, they're going to shoot, you know, and they're trying to show the coach, Hey, I can score and all this. But I tell you, I would, I would, if I see a guy in front of the goal and, and he's ready to shoot the ball and he's got an open player on the other side and he doesn't pass it to him, you know, to me, that's not team water polo. And I, I, I don't like that attitude where a guy says, it's me, 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 me. I'm the one that's going to show, you know, you have to be aggressive. You have to work hard. You have to do all these things. But at the same time, you've got to be work within the framework of the team. You have to be coachable. Uh, you, you know, you've got to be willing to set up your teammates. This is what made Tony, as people don't realize this, Tony Azevedo was a great passer. He had Jeff Nesmith on the left-hander side, and Tony was on the right-hander side. And those two guys back and forth were just, it's amazing, the shots they would create. And, uh, you know, Tony, Tony wouldn't shoot the ball every time he got his hands on it. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he, he was a great, great team player. And uh, so uh, I'm coaching guys now that I think could be really, really good players, and I'm trying to get them away from this me mentality where I have to do everything myself and I'm trying to tell them, you know, make the team, make your teammates better, be willing to pass the ball, look for these opportunities to, uh, to help your team besides just you scoring. It's not and like that's where defense comes in too. It's not just shooting. You know, there's so many other aspects of game, um, you know, it, defending, you know, it's not glamorous to be play defense but it's so important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, I try to, I mean, there, I, I see guys in practice that just not, will not defend at all. They just let guys drive right past them. They'll, they'll, they won't, uh, you know, they're, they're cherry picking. They're not playing defense, uh, things like just a lot of little things like that. But, uh, and I, I, but it's up to the coach. 
the coach has, has to stress the importance of defense. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and if, if you can, if you can convince your guys to play defense, you're going to have a heck of a water polo team. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of cliche. I mean, but everybody says, I mean, defense wins it. I mean, yeah. we never had a problem, you know, the teams that I coach, we never had a problem scoring the ball, you know. The the, the problem yeah, always yeah, came right. with getting a stop, you know. That that really yeah, is exactly. what it comes down to. It's like you know no one's going to keep us at zero. That's very yeah. very rare yeah. that you're going to yeah. get shut out unless a team is just that much, you know, 20 goals better than you, sure. but can you get a stop after you've scored a goal? That yeah. is really momentum right there. Exactly. Well, I tell guys all the time the teams as they if you can keep the score low you have a chance to win every game. Yeah. But you know, if you let that, if you let the other team to score and they score 12 or 14 goals, you're probably not going to score 12 or 14 goals. But if you, if you could limit them to seven goals, you've got a chance to score eight goals, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, that, and, and that's really what it's all about too. And especially if your team is not maybe as good as the other teams that you're playing or, you know, uh, the other teams are favored to beat you keeping the score low is definitely to your advantage. It's so funny that you say seven goals because that literally is my mark. Eight goals is my is mark. And and I think if you were to, I, I'm sure somebody out there has this data, but if you were to look back at CIF championship games and NC2A championship games, how many games ended with a score of nine to eight? I would say a oh, lot, yeah. a lot. Yeah, sure, sure. It's Have you noticed weird. too that, that uh, championship games are usually lower scoring? Yeah. Yeah, it's all about the, the defense, part. you know, because the yeah. shot's not going to be there when you're nervous, when you're, you know, when you're too wound up. I mean, the, the offense oh, is kind yeah. of the first thing to go away, you know. I mean, it's sure. it's the defense that you can sort of control, and I think that's that's where a lot of coaches get into to problems is that they don't realize that defense is the one constant in your game, yeah. or it exactly. could be a constant, whereas the and offense, you, know, you, don't, you, you just never and know. You don't have to be a super athlete. Yeah. You don't have to be a super athlete. I mean, if, if you have the desire to try to stop the other team and, and, ability, and you know, if you just follow the game, it doesn't take great super talent. I mean, if, if, you wanna, if you're going to be a great shooter, you've got to have that great ability to be able to shoot the ball. But you don't have to be a great uh, player to, to play defense. It's just how much, how much do you, you want to put into it? You yeah. know, how much desire do you have to stop the other team? Yeah, you know, I, I tell the guys, well, anybody can play defense, but there are a lot of guys that don't. You yeah, know, play no, defense. I, I agree. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I wanna, I wanna touch on two more questions here before I, okay. before I let you go. Um, and you've been so gracious with your time. I appreciate. It. I know we're all sort of cooped in right now uh, during oh, yeah. this coronavirus thing, and um, but so who, who would you say are have been your biggest uh, mentors in your coaching career? If you could look back on, uh, well, yeah, if you could go back. Yeah. And... Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've had some really good mentors over the years, uh, coaches, but you know, uh, as a young coach, you've got to seek these people and you've got to seek help. You've got to go to clinics. You've got to listen to other coaches. Uh, you can learn from every, I learned from other coaches. I learned from, uh, players. I learned from, uh, games you know what the other team did to us uh and i was lucky to have some pretty good mentors you know i mean uh over the years i i, I coached with bob horn uh monty Niskowski, 
the national team coach. I coached with Bill Barnett. Uh, I've coached with Radko Rudic. You know, so I've had some really, really good mentors. But I think when it all boils down to it is that Bob Horn was probably the guy that I learned. I really went, I went from just being a naive, uh, you know, player just out of, out of college to uh, learning about coaching and actually how to coach. And I think I just learned more from him than anybody else. I, and I, I give him credit, you know, not, not only that, but just the, that he gave me the opportunity to coach, you know, and to be involved with the UCLA program. I mean, that, it was just uh, some of the guys on that team, I, you know, I'll never forget. It was just a super group of guys, very talented guys. Uh, and I, I was working with those guys every day, you know. Yeah. And not a lot, sometimes just sitting there observing, you know. And you're not always involved uh, when you're the uh, graduate assistant coach, but man, you just learn by watching. And and I, and I would talk to Coach Horn too a lot about it, a lot of uh, you know things too. And we, we had we had John Wooden was at UCLA at the time. <laughs> I remember getting in the car with him. We were going to some kind of a, a athletic function. It was Bob Horn and Coach Wooden and, and, and wow. me and a driver, and uh, just able to to chat with him, you know, uh, about the different things. Uh, Bill Walsh was at Stanford when I was there. My first year at Stanford was Bill Walsh's first year at Stanford. And the thing I learned from him is about preparation. You know, he's even, he's even written a book about that, that if you prepare the team ahead of time for every situation and you get them in, you know, fit to play the game, he said, the game will take care of itself. You know, you're not going to go in there every game and make these miraculous drop a new play and make these make these decisions about in the middle of the game and suddenly you're going to change everything and you can't you know you can't expect the guys to to uh, if you come up with something new right in the middle of a game they're not going to be able to to adapt to that but if you prepare them ahead of time and they're prepared uh, and that's the thing I think I learned the most from, from Bill Watt. he you know he was the guy in the NFL who would script the first 30 plays of the game. That's he had them all planned out ahead of time. That's they were the first 30 plays of the game were, were, were already scripted out. Or then the guys already knew what those plays were and, the, and uh, they, what order they, gotta, they were going to do them in. And once in a while, they have to change that a little bit, you know, depending on the situation. But uh, I mean, uh, that's how prepared the guy was. And I think that's what made him just a super coach. Uh, uh, one last thing on that too, is that, uh, about preparation and uh, and coaching during the game. Uh, Vince Lombardi, the old uh, football coach uh, from the Green Bay Packers, uh, they used to tell him, hey, coach, you know, uh, you're, you're coaching this football team. You're this professional team. You know, you guys don't have a lot of plays. And he says, no, we don't need a lot of plays. He said, look, it, if you if you block and you tackle better than the other team does, you're going to win. You, if you execute the basic fundamentals of the game better than the other team executes the basic fundamentals, you're going to, you're going to win the game. He said, you don't need all these fancy plays. You know, I, I really think water polo coaches these days are so caught up in plays. You know, they got to have plays for this and plays for that. I mean, we, we had a few, but hardly any when I was coaching. I mean, we had a few six on five plays, but I, I don't know if, Jovan was the one that kind of started that trend or not, but it seems like everybody's got, you know, all these plays and they're so complicated. Uh, I, I hear coaches 
you know, present these plays and I have no idea what they're talking about half the time. So, <laughs> so let me, you know, <laughs> bef- I want, I want to touch on this point because you're talking about preparation yeah. Yeah. And you use the the example of Lombardi saying, if we tackle and we block better than the other team, we're going to yeah. win. Right. Okay. What are those, how do you translate those fundamentals to water polo? What were the things that, and I, I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here, but yeah. that that's what I want to know is what were the things that you put the most emphasis on in terms of fundamentals or details? Sure. Well, uh, I, I used to have a drill called beat your man, one-on-one driving. You see that in soccer all the time. Uh, you don't see it anymore in water polo. But back then, we, we used to drive. And so if you could beat your man, you if you executed, if you drove better than he could play defense, you're going to get free, you're going to get a shot. You know, So there's, there's right there, right off the bat, is the number one fundamental that we used to work on. Yeah. I think that you had to execute. And we would we would play that game almost every day, the Beecher man. I even I, it was kind of uh, I did that when Tony was uh, in his second year at Stanford, and he had just during the summer with the national team had broken his eardrum, and so we were doing a Beecher man type of drill. And for some reason, I didn't have hats on the guys, and one of the guys on our team accidentally hit him in the ear oh. and rebroke his eardrum. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. I'm going, oh, man. So he sat out a few games during that season. He had to pack his ear with cotton and all kinds of stuff, you know, to keep it dry. And um, so, but still, this beat your man drill was one thing. Uh, I think uh, reacting on the counter. Uh, if you can outreact uh, the, the guys you're going against, uh, you're on defense and you have, you anticipate the ball turning over or they take a shot or there's a bad pass. Boom. You are gone. And you'd be surprised how many players will, when the other team shoots the ball, they will turn back and see if the watch and see if the goalie blocked the shot or not, you know, and, and I, I'm always telling you, have faith in your goalie. I just want you to blast out of there on the counter. I don't care what's happening behind you. Uh, Guy Baker at UCLA used to, used to, they used to have a great counterattack. They do the same thing. It's just automatic reaction. And you have to work at it as a coach to get those guys to do it. Every drill that I do, even half court drills and shooting drills, we react after we take the shot or the ball turns over uh, back to half court. So, uh, it, and we worked on it every, every, every day in practice. So there's, there's two areas right there, you know, driving and, and reacting. Yeah. Uh, where you can, you can out, you can beat the other guy. Yeah. And I mean, these the are, way. and these are also, I mean, I think if you listen to that, I think some people would think, oh, those are offensive drills, but in reality, they're also defensive drills because oh, you yeah. have to play defense one-on-one on the driver. And then you also have to yeah. know what you're going to do. You can't be afraid to shoot thinking that someone's going to counter you every single time. So you have to sort of it, learn how yeah. to protect against that. Yeah. You know, that, that did help us, though, because teams were afraid of us because they knew they yeah. knew we were going to counter every time they shot the ball. Yeah. And some there were times where guys, were, they, they wouldn't take the shot. They'd dump it in the corner rather than take the shot because they knew we would counter. Yeah. So that was kind of a weapon, you know, in our favor, too. Yeah. yeah. Was there, and this is sort of, the, I think I'm going to use that as basically some advice that you would give to a younger coach and I'll come back yeah. to that. So we only have a, a few more minutes, but yeah. Was there somebody, was there a coach 
or was there a player that you look back on and you think, I, I, I hate or I hated coaching against that coach or there was one player throughout an era that you were just like, oh, man, that guy is just a nightmare. Um, I'll start with the coach. Was there a co- and this isn't like a negative thing. I mean, it's just friendly yeah, rivalry. Yeah, yeah. Is there somebody that you hated coaching against? Uh, you know, uh, Newland was pretty darn tough to coach against yeah. at UC Irvine. Uh, Ted Newland. Uh, I, you know, I I I coach against some pretty darn good coaches. I mean, uh, Pete Catino at Cal, Newland at Irvine. Uh, Bob Horn at UCLA, Guy Baker at UCLA, Adam Krikorian at UCLA, Yovan uh, <laughs> and John Williams at USC, uh, Ken Lindgren at Long Beach. He was an you know, Olympic coach. And uh, those games were all tough. Uh, our biggest rivalry was probably with Cal, you know, with Pete Catino coaching there. And, uh, and we were good friends. But, you know, uh, those were tough games, boy, I tell you. So, uh, but you know, there was a challenge and I, I really enjoyed that, that challenge. Uh, and, uh, I, I can't say there was any one guy that I feared, but, uh, you know, uh, I certainly didn't want to tell the players that even if I did, but, yeah. uh, so, and as far as players, um, you know, uh, gosh, guys, you know, like people like, uh, yeah, there were a couple, uh, the, um, what's it, Chris Humbert. Who played at Cal? Uh, left-handed center, and uh, he was tough. And he played. He made uh, two-time. He was a two-time Olympian for the United States. Yeah, I mean that guy was like uh, six, 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 seven, right? Left-hander. Yeah, he played basketball in high school. You know the guy, and he so and you know a guy like Carlos Stephens, who played at Cal. Uh, his daughter, you know, is Maggie Stephens. He both of his daughters have been on our Olympic team. Both of them went to Stanford. He was from Puerto Rico. And that guy was so tough. Wow. Boy, I tell you, uh, he was just tough in every aspect of the game. Defense, offense, he could play any position. He kind of reminded me of Fargo, who played in Hungary years ago, yep. who could play any position in the pool, you know, uh, people like that. So uh, I'm trying to think of any other players. I'm sure, well, there are a lot of players that we certainly respected. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And, I, and I tried not to uh, to make special uh, you know, things I would say to the team, God, we got to stop this guy. This guy can do this. We have to do this. We have to make all these special arrangements to try to stop this guy. You know, I tried not to play that up too much. I just wanted to, we do one thing. Maybe we might double team him or something like that, but you know, I wouldn't make a, try to make a big deal out of it. Cause yeah. then that, then the guys in the team were scared of yeah. that guy, you know? Yeah. So, but, uh, uh but there were there were a lot of really good players that we played against all those years, and and, and good coaches as well. Yeah, well, coach, I'm just absolutely uh, blessed to have had the opportunity to speak to you for as long as we've been able to speak. Um, I know that. Well, thank you. But I think we went a little over time. No, no, and this is this is great for yeah. me. I mean, I listen. Okay. At at the end of the day, even though a lot of people email, a lot of people have contacted me and said hey i love your podcast at the end of the day this starts you know with me wanting to get better first and i think um if that can if that carries on to everyone else that's great but um you know you're somebody that i've always wanted to have this conversation with and you've done you've done it the right way and 
I think your suggestions are really, really intelligent and well thought out suggestions. Um, and, and I just well, you appreciate know, it takes, you being on. It takes on. a lot of years to to, uh, to to be able to figure stuff out. Sometimes it's a problem right now with coaches coming in when they're really young. You know, it, you make a lot of mistakes. You know, a lot of it's trial and error. So the the more you can do to learn things before you arrive as a coach, the better off you'll be. And you're, I mean, you'll eventually make it. You know, but you're going to make some mistakes along the way. And, uh, I'm sure I've made my share of mistakes too, but you know, eventually you you have to learn from your mistakes. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I'm gonna, I right. I can't wait for everyone to hear this, and um, you know, obviously, if you ever put on any clinics or anything like that, you could always reach out to me, and I'd love to broadcast them out and just let everybody know. Um, but again, thank you for being on, and uh, hope to okay. we could do it again. All right, I really enjoyed this, and uh, I really thank you for having me on. Cool. Thank you.